0: LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
0: Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Woo!
1: What a run through the world of dialysis. Hey eh, Santosh.
0: <laughs> it was a good time. I I always get fascinated, especially when medical technology comes into play, because I always find more things than i even thought that i would find because you have to take an engineer who you know usually there's a doctor who comes up with a weird ass. an
1: engineer a doctor and a podcaster walk onto the radio
0: yeah No, no, no. But someone, you know, it's, it's a defibrillator, right? So some doctor has to come in or a pacemaker and walk up to someone, you know, who's messing with electricity for the first time and be like, I want you to stick these wires into people or <laughs> or a doctor – For dialysis, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, I want you to get this person's blood through this tube and get some of the stuff.
1: I do believe it's an alternate week, and that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Journal Club. Yay! Journal Club. (laughs) For those of you new to the show, you don't hear me swinging my arms around like Kermit the Frog, but I assure you it's happening. And this being October, we come back in October for a reason because i love halloween month
0: <laughs> you you love halloween month you i think you love halloween month uh more than you love maybe anything um except maybe you know san diego comic con
1: month only two holidays that matter halloween and comic con <laughs> however that does that this first journal club deserves to have a little bit of a spooky bent
0: how how spooky do you want to make it i don't want to scare our listeners i mean we're a medical show, after all, a lot of our stuff. I, I was about pre- to say you
1: don't want to scare boy. our listeners, okay. and then you immediately follow up with "it's a medical show." I mean, you're sending me some mixed <laughs> signals here, Santosh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. Okay, uh, you guys, just a warning. Uh, there's going to be a few things here which are. Uh, tad bit creepy you know, so we'll link all the the show notes in there have have a view and um
1: all right uh, gang turn the lights the down anyway low. And then wait for the next bust out your ouija podcast device <laughs> and prepare for a journal club based <laughs> on horror stories <laughs> uh-huh. we begin tonight's all journal right, club dracula Go by ahead, telling dracula. you scientists have a test to predict if you will die in the next 10 years. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it's, this is, uh, you know, I, I'm all about can we and, 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 you know, are we able to, but, you know, I, I care That's what holds you back, about really. ethics and stuff as well and medical research. <laughs> no, it's a good thing because, you know what? This kind of data is going to surface, right? We're going to find out that because we, you know, we shit on our bodies by not exercising or, you know, having chips for dinner, like I totally didn't have today or, <laughs> you know, you know, all these bad things, but that causes, you know, epigenetic and metabolic changes, which are molecules that we can quantify in the body. So this kind of thing was.
1: Why, Santosh, I do believe you've buried the lead. Oh, God. <laughs> and that would be a grave mistake.
0: Oh, my God. Is this going to be the whole episode?
1: Most of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just like that? You can't turn me on and off like a light switch.
1: Are you afraid to be left in the dark? Uh,
0: I, I kind of. I mean, but that's a childhood thing.
1: So, to be fair, listening audience... This is a horribly misleading title to this article and typical of the sort of tomfoolery and shenanigans we often see on the Internet. But it did do a good enough job to draw my attention to dig a little deeper. And scientists from the Max Planck Institute for the Biology of Aging, which sounds completely made up, but is a respectable scientific institution, have developed a that can better predict your age risk of five and 10 year mortality. This relies on a bunch of biomarkers in the blood that are linked to various factors that appear to af- that appear to affect your risk of death. Now we've already had factors like this in the past, such as cholesterol, blood sugar, uh, blood pressure, things like that, where we can say, listen, if you have consistently high cholesterol, you're this likely to get a heart attack in 10 years, which is predicting whether or not you may die. So, you know, they're, they're blowing this up a little out of proportion. At the
0: same time, um, uh, you know, because the just like you were saying, the cholesterol or your blood pressure, these are all surrogates. You know, we don't really care that the cholesterol itself is high just for the sake of the cholesterol. We want to know that if it's going to affect your heart and cause a heart attack or your brain and cause a stroke. Um, but that being said, when you take one little piece of data for, for a human being, in you know and you look at it in isolation it's actually not a very good predictor at all um so what these guys did was they found a lot of different biomarkers and then they took a bunch of cohorts that were just assembled from all over europe to actually examine various things about life and then they just plotted a really basic thing against where were the biomarkers at and who died and why
1: now before we give you a nightmare on elm street let us go into the child's play of how they set <laughs> up this
0: yeah dude i can i read off some of the cohorts that they used in this one
1: they looked at 44000 participants mm-hmm. ages 18 to 109. And they followed up these participants over a course of about two to four years. And during that follow up 5000 of them died, which is good. I mean, not for those individuals, (laughs) but good when you're studying 10 year mortality, because if nobody dies, you haven't really, you know, identified good markers. So (laughs) Some of these markers were linked to things like immunity, inflammation, blood sugar, some of the stuff we already know. So, Santos, tell us about the cohorts.
0: Yeah, I just want to read these off because these are so cool. Um, These are all cohorts that were assembled. They're separate cohorts, so they're kind of... They're trying to get as much heterogeneity, um, you know, meaning different people as they possibly could. But they were able to recruit these cohorts in, so whole groups of people that were looking at a wide range of factors and life and death on in a longitudinal way, so over time. So they had the, uh, I love these, Alpha Omega Cohort, ALSPAC, Eggcut. Earth,
1: Wind, FinRisk, Water, Fire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no. Finrisk 1997, Dilgom, Akora F4, LLS Non-Agenarians, LLL off- LLS Offspring and Partners, Prosper, Rotterdam, and Twins UK, which was, of course, a twin study. All of these, you know, they had different ratios of guys and girls and ages and all these kind of things. And these cohorts were all groups of people from different countries where they said, oh, you know what? We just want to record what's going on in our lives um, over a long period of time. And then... You know, whoever needs this information and will also contribute things like blood and fluids and stuff like this, you guys can just like have the data. We'll Write down a few stuff about our lives and then you can track our ages and our cause of death and all these kind of things. And then you'll have a bunch of data from blood draws and stuff. And depending on the types of study you want to do, you can run the data how you like. Now, the great thing about this is you have a massive number of patients all being followed longitudinally. The downside is these studies, when they grab these patients from these cohorts, they aren't really looking for a specific thing, which is a really dangerous thing to do in science. They're just gathering a bunch of data and making it available, which can tilt us towards a bias which is called post hoc analysis, meaning that we're analyzing to look for something after uh we already have the data rather than arranging our study to examine for a that's
1: how you end question. up with things like ice cream directly correlated with death and summer
0: exactly yeah yeah it's it's not the best way to do things but it is a great way to start to now ask the nice thing about
1: this huge study and the fact that they had 14 different biomarkers that they pulled out uh, is that in comparison to conventional risk factors like systolic blood pressure and cholesterol, these biomarkers are more suitable for guided screening because they're associated with mortality and independent of sex, age, or cause of death. So whether you died from a heart attack, stroke, or being hit by a greyhound bus, they, these markers would still show up consistently at certain levels in those individuals. Meaning you would be better able to recommend to somebody, hey, you're reaching an age where you need to change your diet or you should probably stop taking public transportation.
0: (laughs) The coolest thing about this, uh, Josh, is in order to find those 14 particular biomarkers that seem to have the highest impact on mortality, They actually started with a meta-analysis of 226 metabolic biomarkers, and then they were able to narrow that a little bit to 159. Despite
1: the ridiculousness of this original title of the story and the natural death panel discussion that followed it, like, well, if we know people are going to be dying in 10 years of this and that, why even bother treating them at all? which is, of course, all the pearl clutcher shout. And the, the answer is, it's not to decide when to <laughs> give up on people. It is to decide how to better direct their care. Oh, does this marker show that you're more likely to suffer from diabetic-related complications? Let's get you on a dietary plan this much earlier. Uh, do we see a higher propensity for inflammation? Let's hook you up with a rheumatologist And follow along for these things, just like we would do cancer screenings, or maybe we can better adapt screening tests. So, although these 14 markers all showed a good effect when combined into one model or a good predictive ability using two different methods, the metabolic score that tells you how important any individual marker has not yet really been constructed. So, they said, we've got all this great data. Now we actually have to do something with it and put together a score to make it into a meaningful method of applying this. Yeah,
0: and they took the extra step after they had analyzed all of this data kind of prospectively with some of the cohorts. What they did is they took that FINRISK 1997 cohort, which was 7,603 individuals, um, 1,200 or 1,213 of whom died. And they said, okay, well, we, we can calculate this score based on these you know, 14 biomarkers. Now, can we actually test the association of the biomarkers with mortality using, you know, age stratification? And in FINRISC 1997, they had that age stratification. So they applied their test with the 14 biomarkers, to the FINRIS cohort, and they were able to, you know, kind of validate and say, hey, you know, our test when I, we were looking at the other, you know, 13 cohorts, using that algorithm and, and those 14 biomarkers and applying to this new cohort, we were able to reliably predict mortality.
1: So let's move on to the next story. And it involves two things that are always fun to talk about mad science and blood hemophilia. We've brought it up a lot on this show talking about everything from vampires to the first blood transfusions, and now gene therapy. And hemophilia hemophilia looks like a great target for gene therapy. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it's a disease where you have difficulty or a complete inability to form blood clots. This means even the slightest paper cut could cause you to bleed out as you'll never stop bleeding, just oozing and oozing even from minor injuries. Uh, Now, there are treatments for it, but they're super expensive and for some hemophiliacs can cost as much as a million a year. You know, it's just, it can be almost a quarter of a million to just get a year's worth of injections for these clotting proteins. So the idea of inserting a gene into somebody that would force their cells to make the correct proteins sounds great and is the ultimate in mad science.
0: (laughs) This This is so cool. We're in the era of gene therapy, especially for disorders of the blood. I think we've discussed before gene therapy to fix um, immune deficiencies, we've got trials for gene therapy for sickle cell disease, which is really important because, you know, people with sickle cell, they can die as early as 30s or if it's really severe, even in their 20s. So to fix that is absolutely fantastic. The best part of doing gene therapy for a bloodborne disease where it's a, a problem actually in the blood is y- you have this factory in your bone marrow which is making your blood cells. So if you repair a problem that they have, you know all of a sudden boom the factory keeps making the new blood cells with the repaired gene. Um this one Josh instead of using a clotting factor or or a, they're going to they're going to fix a problem with Clotting factors, Correct. which are so supposed currently, to Currently,
1: most case. gene therapies use what's called adeno-associated virus. It's the most common virus used as a vector in gene therapy because you have to get the gene in there. So we load the gene into a virus shell. Then we use that empty virus shell with the gene we want, infect mm-hmm. somebody with it. The virus worms its way into the cell delivers rather than an infectious protein, it delivers a brand new gene. And all the cells that get infected with it start making that new gene. Well, there's two problems with this for something like hemophilia. The genes that we need to create clotting factors like factor eight or factor nine, they're too large to fit into the virus. So as a result, scientists had to go to a URL shortener version and develop a truncated version of the gene that still works. Like The genes do still work, but maybe not always exactly as designed. The second problem is because you're still delivering a virus into the human body, the immune system may react to it. And the higher the dose required to be effective in delivering the gene, the more likely your own body will turn against it and attack you while you're trying to deliver this cure.
0: There's actually two problems here, Josh. Um, One is that the body may attack the adeno-associated virus or the AAV and wipe the virus out before it can deliver its payload to the liver to integrate the gene into the liver cells. The other one is, it's hopefully not as much of a problem, but because people with factor 9 deficiency in this case. So the factor 9 is made in the liver. Because they don't make it natively, sometimes those patients' bodies recognize the factor 9 itself as a foreign particle and attack it. And those antibodies that attack the factor 9 are called factor 9 inhibitor. So it's it's a really weird cycle because they're making factor nine now, but the body says, "Hey, this stuff isn't supposed to be here. I don't recognize it." So it just you know makes antibodies and binds it up, and it in effect should just eliminates it anyway.
1: So there. Are- I present to you this dramatic recreation of what's going on inside your body. Hey, you guys, I'm here to help out with. Hey, wait, wait! Why are you attacking me? I just want to help. No and the patient bleeds to death. Hey, hey, get out. Hey, get out. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, on May 22nd, Pfizer and Spark announced that one of the 15 participants who had been in the phase 1 and 2 clinical trials for hemophilia B in factor 9, all 15 patients had been able to stop taking routine infusions of factor 9 because of this gene therapy and none of them experienced, you know, side effects. So, so on July 16th they said, "All right, we have functionally if not cured these people of their Yay! hemophilia, made it way more manageable where they don't have to get these frequent transfusions to prevent bleeding." So they announced a phase 3 trial which is going to be expanded out to a much larger group and I'm going to tell you the name not because you'll remember it, but just cuz it's fun to say. So the phase three trial of the gene therapy called Ella Elaparvovec. It sounds like a Doctor Strange spell or some kind of demon summoning chant. Uh you're bleeding too much, Ella
0: Elaparvovec. Yeah, it is. And I, I'm glad you said Doctor Strange rather than Harry Potter, because it sounded much more, it had much more gravitas than Harry Potter.
1: I want people to remember he's a medical doctor as well as the Sorcerer Supreme.
0: It is. I think these were great follow-ups. Um, to you know, 2017, there were two further gene therapy studies publishing reporting achievement of factor eight and nine levels beyond expectation of most treaters, um, and really all this goes back um, to 2011 when wild-type factor nine, so the large unmutated, untruncated factor nine, was actually put in. In an adenovirus or an adeno associated virus vector and put in. Um, And that one wasn't as successful as this newer therapy. They needed some immune suppressants and things like that. But these incremental improvements in gene therapy mean that people don't have to take factor anymore. And in the most extreme cases, they don't have to get liver transplants.
1: This is not a perfect solution yet. On average, over this two years of follow-up in both of these trials, the one for hemophilia A and the one for hemophilia B, even when they didn't have to take these factor concentrates, they weren't producing, if they produced normal, average, or above normal levels of these clotting factors in the first year, by the time they hit the second year, those levels had dropped to less than 50%, and it's not clear why the gene therapy wasn't really sticking around or lasting, which may mean that they need to re-up and have now, you know, routine infusions of genes, but not nearly as often as they were having infusions of factor concentrates. However, even at 46%, that's still good enough to form some clots, and the levels of 40 and 30%, which can do a base bare minimum job, have remained steady following those two yeah. years of follow. So
0: basically what we can tell those patients is that they can actually live normal lives without being afraid that, you know, a small tap or, you know, a, a minor fall or something can cause a life-threatening bleed. But, you know, we can't give them the assurance that people without hemophilia have that, you know, even if they take a severe fall or something like that, that they won't bleed because, you know, with normal clotting factors, when you have 100 percent working a lot of the time, even, you know, this is why, for instance, boxers can box because, you know, they're not going to bleed every time. But, you yeah, know, I think 50 percent is an excellent starting point for a lot of these people and, and being able to tell them that you can go about your normal lives and, and not have to be scared that all of a sudden your, your platelets will just give out on you. You know, that's that's pretty reassuring.
1: Now, our next story isn't so much a specific study to prove something as it is a fascinating explanation is what hemophiliacs can do with all that excess blood that they're spilling everywhere.
0: Oh god. That was
1: one of your creepier segues. You should be happy I have segues at all.
0: Is that what we've come to, Josh? (laughs) (laughs) Is that what we've we've come to the point where (laughs) you'll get my crappy segue and you'll like it?
1: Welcome back, listeners. (laughs) Fine, you want a segue, I'll give you a segue. Animal blood has a long culinary history through (sighs) Europe, although recently it's become neglected. Now, we use dried blood as fish food or fertilizer. Red blood cells are directly used for mink feed. Meat glue, I'm sorry, transglutaminase, is used to make novel forms of meat, like imitation <laughs> crab or McRib.
0: <laughs> Gross.
1: So okay. the Nordic Food Lab has decided to study the coagulating properties of blood as an egg substitute in sweet products. Now, to be fair, they're studying the coagulating properties of animal blood and not human blood, but the principle is the same. So
0: whoa, whoa, whoa. okay, hold on. It's not much of a substitute. You're basic you're taking a unfertilized baby chick, and you're gonna mix it up and then throw it into a cake or something. But instead of doing that, this is just taking the blood and using the proteins in blood to get the same results.
1: Have you ever cut yourself while you're trying to make food? Well, now you can save that in a little bowl and make a delightful like pancake out of it later.
0: Dude, oh.
1: Egg intolerance is one of the major food allergies affecting (laughs) children in Europe, also adults. In Germany, for example, 8% of children have reactions to egg proteins. 30 to 53% of children with food allergies in Spain and France are allergic specifically to ovalbumin. Now, eggs and blood have a very similar protein composition Mm -hmm. because of that albumin component. And they, the Nordic Food Lab figured out that a substitution ratio of 65 grams of blood for one egg or 43 grams of blood for one egg white can be used in the kitchen. I know what you're saying to yourself. I don't do the metric system. What is 45 grams of blood? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha!
0: If, listen, I genuinely, please comment. (laughs) I want to see the people who are like, yeah, 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 blood instead of eggs, no problem. Grams. So in case (laughs) case you were wondering,
1: (laughs) 43 grams of blood, which is an egg white, is about two and a half tablespoons of blood. And 65 grams, which is a whole egg, is about four tablespoons. So there we go. We got the metrics out of the way. Using this method, Nordic Food Lab developed and tested recipes okay. for sourdough blood pancakes, blood ice cream, blood, chocolate blood sponge cake, and blood meringues. They propose, and it actually does have some science behind it, that a benefit of even eating it can decrease anemia due to the high bioavailability of heme iron. Now, this is the same as kind of taking a transfusion of iron if you're in low blood. It better binds the red blood cells that are circulating around. A challenging factor for taste, which makes food taste much more metallic, that taste of Mm. old blood. Now, cultures who do eat a lot of blood and calm down, people. I'm talking about things like blood pudding in... England or blood sausage, not like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah, yeah, not. <laughs> yeah, you know, drinking our ritual sacrifices and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. This, so, this, this, additionally, yeah, cultures have alleviated not or hidden this all. metallic yeah. taste by pairing it with other strong flavors such as herbs and spices like cinnamon and anise, as well as newer ones including roasted koji and uh, woodruff. I'm going to go ahead and link in the show notes. To this page, because they give you the full recipe for how to do it. Color changes depending on the reaction of these iron ores. Vacuum-packed, blood is dark, left outside for a while, or whipped into a foam, it turns bright red. And heated, it leads to the proteins denaturing and giving it a dark chocolate brown black appearance. (laughs) So you can imagine the world of molecular gastronomy you can do. And here's a very important, I love this under blood clotting, when you're trying to make the meringues, they're important. Shake blood regularly before use and strain.
0: (laughs) You do. So um, there's going to be, you know, like we were talking about in our previous article, you're going to have clotting factors in your blood Usually, I think, Josh, when you get blood, you don't just get one component, right? You're not just going to get like the red blood cells. You're going to get whole blood. So it'll have the propensity to clot. So you can't really do anything more with it. So if you want to use it after storage, you do have to strain out the clotted bits.
1: Now, when they tested these, and I would have loved to have been in this taste testing panel, there was a general difference in perception between male and female tasters and younger and elderly tasters with women (laughs) generally being more sensitive towards a metallic taste and having a higher threshold for bitter and sweet compounds. Uh, Now, this may be because of monthly changing hormone concentrations in women that influence their tasting and decrease thresholds during menstruation means that women will be more likely to perceive compounds such as those in blood at this time. We learned a little bit of this when we talked to Professor Charles Spence last season about neuro on how, oh, you know, what you're neat. eating and how it's presented can change your perception.
0: Oh, yeah. If you guys haven't seen it, just please do go back and uh, see that interview because we were so happy to talk to them.
1: Ideally, yes, you can just run out and get eggs. But if you have a lot of extra animal blood laying around, and I'm going to emphasize animal blood, then it may be fun to give some of these recipes a try. And here are some of the ones they attempted. Blood with sourdough, blood as a sourdough feed for a culture, blood in yogurt culture, where they put in parentheses, not recommended.
0: (laughs) No, no, that's going to glop very, very quickly.
1: And blood and alcohol creating a drink they called the Red Russian after filtering out denatured clots. And they said, only sipped once and not a fan. But they did give you a recipe that can and has been eaten with a clear conscience for blood ice cream. And it mixed with roasted barley koji that hides that metallic taste. So this is the kind of thing that if you have access to an Asian market, you could pick all of this up. It only takes about 300 milliliters of pig blood, which you can get from your local butcher, milk, cream, gum, and, uh, Trimoline. So if you have an ice cream machine, make some blood ice cream, and please take a photo and send it to us. I, I just want one. That's all.
0: Yeah, you can, um... You could go ahead and try it all day, buddy. I'm gonna leave that.
1: You say it like it would be the weirdest thing I've eaten, and it's not even close.
0: Not even, like, kind of, sort of a little bit close.
1: Doesn't even crack the top ten. They They made a classic Black Forest cake. I should say a classic Blood Forest cake, and... Two half cakes were made, one with blood, the other a chocolate control, and all the tasters felt both were delicious. Nick. <laughs> um, now, they did say, best practices, if you do decide to make blood a experimental or dubiously routine part nice. of your cooking, your best source is a butcher of confidence. Not a confident butcher. A butcher of confidence.
0: <laughs> Meaning that you can place your confidence in the butcher. You
1: should smell it. It should have a sweet, rich, metallic odor without strong animal flavors. Strong aromatic changes can occur in uncastrated pigs due to their production. It makes it gives them something called boar taint. You should respect
0: what? Oh, uh, what? You can't just gloss over boar taint.
1: I absolutely can. You should respect the cold chain. Throughout the handling, meaning there needs to be from the blood making it from wherever it started to the butcher to your kitchen needs to stay at a certain temperature so it doesn't heat up to the point where bacteria can start growing in it. And they recommend you shake and strain it before use, just like bacteria soda. I'm sorry, kombucha. (laughs) That it is best if you freeze it for longer storage. However, the color will become darker and you should thaw the blood on the same day as processing,
0: <laughs> blood is basically a wonderful media for bacteria and fungi to grow in. So you've got a really small window between when you thaw your blood and you cook it to eat it or or put it into whatever. So that's really really important. The same is true for a lot of other animal products, eggs, uh, you know, chicken and beef and all these kind of things, but because blood is so much more nutrient rich and it is a liquid medium, you really have to be careful with the handling of
1: blood when you're going to cook. If anybody tries these recipes, please, please, please okay. share them to our Instagram travel medicine podcast. And I promise you'll get a response from me and possibly an invitation to dinner. <laughs> That said, let's move on to our last heart story. Get away from blood for a moment and talk about <laughs> and talk about how Japan is now permitting the creation of human animal embryo chimeras. Santosh, do you remember Full Metal Alchemist?
0: Just for a moment. This is not full... Okay, yeah, yeah, I've I've seen, actually, the anime, I've never read them.
1: Yeah, the sewing life alchemist who found a way to combine, spoiler alert for a 20-year-old anime, his toddler daughter and his dog into one freakish monstrosity of a beast that longed for death.
0: I I thought you were going to mention any of the other creations, but yeah, that was gross.
1: Researcher Hiromitsu Nakuchi.
0: Would you stop for a sec? We're not gonna talk about some weird, you know, human-animal hybrid in real life that is wandering around begging for death.
1: That's exactly what we're gonna talk about. Maybe not to the extent demonstrated in the anime.
0: Well, not even kind of, but
1: all right. Hiramitsu Nakauchi, who leads the team at the University of Tokyo and Stanford University in California, plans to grow human cells in mouse and rat embryos, and then transplant those chimera embryos into surrogate animals. And the ultimate goal is to produce animals with organs made of human cells that can eventually be transplanted.
0: (laughs) All right. This isn't going to be some like humanized pig that's like, a conscious pig and then it wanders around going, why must I be pig (laughs) or something like that? No, 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 no. It's going to be, you know, a rat or a pig, something with a human liver. You know, that's it. It'll, it'll have a single organ, which has the antigens on the surface and the cells, which are compatible with, uh, you know, transplantation into a human being without rejection. So essentially, the animal part of it uh, is really just a housing that you're using in this particular case for the organ that you want to grow, which is the human organ that you can then take and, and transplant, thus reducing the need for other human beings to die or become brain dead in order to donate certain organs.
1: Kind of like how Blade had uh, the vampires farming humans as a food source.
0: It was we yeah. Would be- <laughs> I guess... I like
1: that that one you didn't object to. You're like, oh yeah, that tracks.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. That one is less, I don't know, less real, less repulsive or something.
1: It's <laughs> less repulsive to keep a bunch of humans on ice to just serve as blood factories than it is to grow one human pancreas inside a rat. Well, the... I, I, mean, I have, the have the to question vampires, your ethics. The I have to question doing... your ethics, but... I <laughs> now... So the strategy that uh, researcher Nakauchi is using is to create an animal embryo that lacks a gene necessary for the creation of a certain organ, like a pancreas. So he would genetically engineer a rat embryo that could not grow a pancreas at all. And then he would inject human stem cells into the animal embryo which can give rise to almost all cell types. The theory being the human stem cells go in and say, all right, guys, what do we need to do here? Oh, a pancreas, eh? On it. And they would make one, and it would be a human pancreas inside a rat embryo, and then give that embryo a chance to grow and see if it can survive, although they're not going to give it a chance to be fully born yet. Now, some bioethicists are concerned about the possibility that human cells might stray beyond the development of the targeted organ Travel to the developing animal's brain and potentially affect its creation. Create, I don't know, some kind of murderous twenty-eight days later scenario. Uh,
0: well, they they don't have to be a murderous twentieth. Uh,
1: you know, 20 then really, days what's later even the type type point? Se-
0: the <laughs> well, the scary thing is here. We have for whatever our audience wants to believe or everything else okay right now in the scientific community the international scientific community we have different standards for what we allow to be done for more conscious creatures um, which you know for instance are simians and humans versus those animals um, that you know are, are a little less conscious so rodents for instance and we have different standards for what we're allowed to do to them based on how much we understand about how they perceive their environment and pain and their social order and all these other things so that we cause them as little distress as possible while we're performing necessary experiments to improve life on this planet that's always it, it's got to go hand in hand all of a sudden, if you've got an animal that we thought had a certain level of consciousness, like a rat or a mouse, and then you humanize it, and all of a sudden it becomes aware the way that a chimpanzee would or a human being. Now, how do you treat that animal? What's so okay? So is going to, okay?
1: in the rat embryos, will be brought to near term, about 14 or 15 days, and you can tell he's taking this seriously because he says, if we notice any of those human cells strain toward the brain, we will abruptly terminate that animal. Uh, he implied, because we don't need murderous 28 days later zombies. <laughs> and if... If that works, he will then apply for government approval to grow hybrid human-pig embryos and bring them near-term up to 70 days. So he wants to proceed with caution, both to have a dialogue with the public, who is understandably feeling a little bit anxious about these chimeras, and also because when this has been tried before in other countries, we've noticed that it's not really helpful to create an animal embryo that's genetically this distinct from humans, especially if we're trying to grow our own transplantable organs. So by studying it in animals that get progressively more like humans genetically, we can build to a point where we have a good set of guiding controls for how to do this in such a way as to cause the least amount of organ rejection or animal abuse.
0: And all of that together is something that we need in order to make sure that we are doing right by the animals and forwarding health care for human beings in the gentlest and kindest way possible. So, you know, we want to be good to the animals and, you know, show them respect for, for what they're doing for us. And we want to make sure that when we achieve a good goal, in this case, hopefully creating organs for people who otherwise need transplants. And Josh, as you know, the transplant list based on what organ you need is pretty damn long. So if we're able to solve this problem in a good and ethical manner, then, you know, all for it. But we should have the utmost respect for the animals making the sacrifice, as well as, you know, This scientific process, so that we're giving the recipients the best chance that they possibly can. And I have
1: a lot more faith. And we're not just rushing carrying this research out than almost anywhere else on Earth.
0: They they have a wonderful track record by and large, and um, yeah, everyone has their faults. I totally understand that, but um, I'm excited for this research, and I'm very very glad that there are good
1: ethicists that are kind of falling on board. Angry. Human animal. <laughs> anyway, that's it for this week, folks. For the love of God. Uh, as promised, oh, okay. I think it's time for a just the tip. <laughs> After all those horror stories, we do need somewhere to kind of kick back, relax. So, Santosh, where are we going this time around? Uh,
0: you know, it's been a while since we've been to Hawaii. Uh, Dr. Josh, I know you spent some time in Hawaii as a doctor. And this time I went back as a tourist. Uh, Swati and I took the girls and we visited the island of Kauai, um, and we also went over to Maui. But I had never been to Kauai before, and I absolutely love it. Um, it's a small island. It's quiet. It's quite remote. Um, the people are very, very sweet. And you don't really have a massive tourism industry there. So the, that island is more of just, hey, this is our home. Come hang out if you want to see some, you know, beautiful oceans and you know, some just gorgeous, gorgeous forest land. With by the way, absolutely no poisonous, venomous, crazy giant predators or anything. Just because, you know, wild pigs on meth. Got it. The animals all grew up and evolved to be totally like awesome,
1: chill. I like (laughs) that you say fewer and not Zero. yeah no, no
0: no there but there's much fewer of those because Kauai is <laughs> no 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 the wild pigs are still there because unfortunately they were introduced to the ecosystem and there is still a bounty for the wild pigs so He's that if you're walking around with a headless head pig,
1: pig to... and you know maybe where. a delightful blood cake some government official you'll get some money from. so where's somewhere yeah. on Kauai that people should visit
0: yeah, so I actually love uh, the Kauai. I, I am uh, Hindu by faith. And so there is a monastery over there uh, on, the left. I believe, the, yeah, <laughs> the left. It's on the east side of the island, or as Josh was saying, actually, Josh, you were wrong. It's the right side of the island if you're looking at the map. And it's just to the north of Wailua River State Park. And the Hindu monastery, which is a uh, Shiva temple over there, was built up by uh, some really nice, sweet people who just wanted a quiet place to meditate and everything. So you can go in, you can see the temple, which is now built, and you can pay your respects if you want to. Um as a worshipper or not a worshipper. Um, otherwise, you can also arrange for personal tours on certain days to actually see the monastic grounds. It's usually closed off to allow the monks their you know, quiet time because they've come there to be apart from the rest of the world. Um, but there are times when they open it up um, the architecture is really beautiful. It is insanely peaceful and calm and quiet. So, uh, yeah, please do visit the monastery. Uh, pay your respects. Uh, you can learn a little bit about Hindu culture, specifically about Shaivism, which is the branch of Hinduism that worships uh, the god of death or destruction or Shiva. Um And yeah, the rest of Kauai is also really friendly and really sweet and really pretty to come to as a tourist so um just be really respectful of death because be honestly you. you know even though there are humans there <laughs> is an and everything so must you what the hell <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> i must i must <laughs> so that's it for this week As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with some of the sources we used in researching this episode. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our friends. Come listen to us on Spotify, or check out our new Instagram, or you can even email us. There's a whole bunch of new ways that you can reach us in this season, and we look forward to hearing from you. Our theme music is composed Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure and until next time as always happy travels and happy halloween
0: links in the show notes <laughs> bye guys